welcome to the Nightcast Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 53rd episode of the Nauticast entitled Marching the Wrong Way, an analysis of a Game of Thrones brand six, in which Bran watches his big brother Rob muster an army to go rescue their dad from the clutch of the Lannisters, which will go 100% according to plan, right, Emmett? Uh, absolutely. Anyways, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark M., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, and our newest member of the small council, Scarlet. The Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers. Thank you, counselors, very much, and welcome to Scarlet. Thank you all, counselors, as always, and welcome to Scarlet indeed. Always good to have a spy master on board, especially as we start getting more and more into the intrigue side of things <laughs> in the series. Could, could she be my master of Mistress of Whispers since you already have a master of Whispers? I will talk. We'll okay, talk. okay, okay. If you're good, if you behave yourself. <laughs> I can't, I, well, I, I can't guarantee that at all. I know you can't. Our spoiler warning, as we talk about in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So before we get into this week's episode, we want to remind everyone that our latest Patreon episode, Shadow of a Crown, Jon Snow and Young Griff, featuring our friend Heathen King, a.k.a. Grant Piercy, is available on patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. We had a great time with Grant yeah. talking about how one of the main characters in the series, Jon Snow, and one of the more secondary characters, Young Griff, appear to have been conceived in relation to each other and how Young Griff kind of reflects and inverts certain tropes in Jon Snow in a way that reveals what Martin is going for with both characters. So check that out if you haven't. If you haven't, signed up on Patreon. It's a great opportunity to listen to a real fun episode. Yeah, it was a super blast to hang out with Grant and talk about Jon Snow and Young Griff and all the parallels and kind of anti-parallels too that George intentionally put into A Dance with Dragons as well as put throughout Jon Snow's arc in the uh, first five books of the series. Our first question this week, we have two questions. And the first question comes from Sir JB, a sworn sword, who asks, and I have to say, Maya culpa from me because this was supposed to be in our last week's episode, but I pasted the wrong question in the, into the document because I'm the fucking worst. As everybody knows, I am the worst of all time. Oh, hush. Uh, anyways, it's a good question, though. So, the question for the show regarding Fire and Blood and the one-handed preacher, the Shepherd. I have a little knowledge about the Dance of the Dragons period of history and no knowledge about the Shepherd before reading the book Fire and Blood. Apparently, he was mentioned in previously released books, so I don't know if anyone has speculated this already, but Mushroom's description of him as pale and foul, as a corpse, fresh risen from the grave, and naming him the Dead Shepherd makes me think that the man is just that, a white of some sorts. What do you guys think? Just another quote-unquote creative detail for Mushroom? Or could the man actually be a revenant like Patchface? Now, there isn't as much evidence beyond Mushroom's word, and his story is very anticlimactic because, of course, he dies. So maybe he is just a man after all. Thoughts? What do you think, Evan? Do you think that the shepherd is a white in Fireblood? Is that what George is going for in kind of describing the, the dead shepherd as, as such? Interesting question. I'm divided on it because he certainly is described in a way that fits with that general trope. And Martin, of course, is known for his his love of zombies and his <laughs> use of the trope in various ways, as we discussed somewhat last week in our episode on John 7. The Shepherd, he's a little too 
coherent to remind <laughs> me of Patchface. Like Patchface is just gone. Right. He's talking in a language of pure prophecy. It's difficult to say if he even understands who he's talking to when he's talking to in real life. He's just he's just in that world. Right. And the shepherd doesn't seem quite like that. He seems to be more of a political leader. In a way, I guess, I mean, I guess he could be a, a Beric Dondarian type because that is, certainly Beric is, is a white who, who functions politically in that regard. But the shepherd has some kind of more horror tropes around him. So I, I count me divided on this question. I, I see what the evidence that points that way, but I don't see how it ties in in the way that it does with, with these other undead characters. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way in that I, I, I'm a divided mind of whether he's actually alive or dead and alive, so to speak. I mean, I think it works as a metaphor for him to kind of resemble being dead and seeming like pale and foul as fresh as a corpse fresh risen from the grave. It kind of is supposed to channel the reader into the idea that, yeah, this guy is going to be responsible for a whole lot of death, uh, both of the people who stormed the dragon pit as well as the dragons themselves. So I think that's part of what George is going for, at least on the meta side. Whether he's actually dead or not, I don't know. He doesn't like he doesn't remind me of Patchface, like you said, he doesn't remind me of Sir Robert Strong or, or Gregory Clegane. He doesn't remind me of the other whites that we encountered last week when we did John 7. He's much more lucid, much more Beric Dundarian-like. So I do, I guess maybe I kind of lean against him being dead. That I think that he's just supposed to look and resemble death. And that serves as a metaphor for what he's about to do with and what he ends up doing in the Dragon Pit. So I think that's kind of where I come down on who he is and what his identity of of his of being alive or dead is, I think I fall to the side of him being alive, at least barely. Agreed. I think the, the metaphor and the, the tone of the dance at that point and how this kind of hellish regime and calamity has fallen upon King's Landing, it fits that very well. So I, I agree. I think that's probably what George is going for there. Our other question this week comes from Lady Beward, a sworn sword, who <laughs> asks, of all the characters in the world of Ice and Fire, which one would be the closest to who you were in high school? <laughs> that's kind of a personal question, but fine. I mean... If you ask me in high school, I'm sure the character I'd like to think I was is Mance. Mm. This, 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 this devastating bard type who wins everyone over through his sheer outsider charisma. But in reality, I think Edmure is probably closer to the mark. You're Edmure? I was going to say Edmure. You were going to say Edmure? Okay. Um, I'll go with Stannis then. I'll okay. I'll just be obvious about it. I mean, so what, co- I mean, what, which, which clique did you fall into in high school? Like, what was your like, clique? What was your group in high school? Uh, I helped run the poetry slam. Does that answer your question? Uh, no, no, not at all. It's, it's that, that particular all. crowd, the, you know, the the nerds who were isolated enough to not get picked on. I was I was in a little bubble world of English teachers who liked me. Mm. That that makes that makes sense. I, I you know, I hung out with the theater kids and the and the poetry kids and the AV kids and and so forth. So I guess like, yeah, or maybe like, you know, one of, um, one of the kids in Old Town that we meet in A Feast for Crows, like the Marmon and Melander yeah. and the other, the other Citadel kids. I, I'm closest, probably closest to them in high school. But not Leo Tyrell? That's not you? Uh, not quite rich enough. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, Drunk enough, but not quite rich <laughs> enough. Lazy enough, just not quite rich enough. Or asshole-ish enough, I'm assuming as well. Oh, well, that's sweet of you, Jeff. What about you? Uh, you were gonna say Edmure? I was gonna say Edmure, but then I, I was kind of thinking about it a little bit more, and I was gonna I'm gonna go with Thomas Evans uh, because I when I was okay 14 years old, I was granted my first acoustic guitar, and I gotta say you were. I took that son of a bitch everywhere I went to all throughout high school, uh, playing you know the, the good the good ones like Wonderwall, 
uh, semi-sonics closing time because I was in high school in the late 90s and early 2000s. So clearly the best time in American popular music. It, it really, really was. You know, I learned how to play, you know, My Own Prison by Creed, like all, all the classics, all the classics is, is, is my guy, is, is who, the type of person that I was. Uh, and I would try – my intent in, use, in playing guitar was not because I had a great love for music. Uh, no, it was much like Thomas Sevens. I was just trying to get girls. I mean, that's the only reason why I did anything in high school. Kind of like Edmure and, and Thomas Sevens, like kind of in, in one person because I was kind of an idiot too and had all of these like – That's great. You, you've combined people who hate each other. Right. I love that though. Right. You're, you're, you're the bard who sang about the, the floppy fish and you're the floppy fish. That right. explains so much, Jeff. Uh, yes. That, that kind of like, yeah. That was me. I'm the floppy fish and the guy who sang about my own floppy fish. Ugh, that's kind of awkward. Thank you so much, Lady B-Word. Appreciate all the support. And she's got a couple other questions we have coming up in future episodes. So again, if you guys are interested in asking us questions on the podcast, you're welcome to join us as one of our sworn swords, uh, which is our $10 above month uh Patreon subscription, you could be a Sworn Sword Kingsguard or a small council member. And any questions you submit will end up on our podcast at some point down the road. So check us out again at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. So this episode is all about Brand's sixth chapter in A Game of Thrones. And it's a fantastic chapter. I can't wait to talk about it. And to get us started out, here is the synopsis for A Game of Thrones Brand 6. And it's kind of funny, like typically when I do like a synopsis, I don't start with the opening line because that's kind of cliche. But this chapter opening is a beaut, man. Like it's really, really good. So the Karstarks came in on a cold, windy morning, bringing 300 horsemen and near 2,000 foot from their castle at Carhold. The steel points of their pikes winked in the pale sunlight as the column approached. Hmm. The steel points of their pikes winked in the pale sunlight is a goddamn turn of phrase, George. Damn. Make it easier for us here trying to get our unfinished novels published. I mean, this is kind of a general comment, not really at all a personal one related to me. Of course not. No. Of course not. No, not at all. Not at all. <clears throat> Brandstart watches the watches Lord Rickard Karstark, his sons and their host, approach Winterfell with a member of the Karstark matching band, marching band playing the bass drum atop the shoulders of Hodor. And while Old Nan had stated that the Karstarks had blood ties to the Starks from a few hundred years ago, Bran isn't really so sure about this. These guys have long hair and thick beards with clothing made from skins, polar bear pelts, seal, and wolf pelts. I'm kind of picturing warrior hippies here. That's just kind of what I'm seeing here with the kind of long hair, dark beards, but they're all carrying swords. So It's very 70s. Again, you can you know hear Kashmir by Led Zeppelin playing right. in the background. Yeah, exactly. And these were the last Northmen to arrive at Winterfell. Bran really wanted to ride out to the Wintertown to say hi to all of these people milling about, but no. Rob wasn't about to let Bran potentially endanger himself again, especially with such a volatile bunch. Only two days ago, one of Lord Bolton's men knifed one of Lord Kerwin's at the smoking log. Our Lady Mother would skin me for a pelt if I let you put yourself at risk. It's kind of weird about this whole Lord Bolton's man knifing one of Lord Kerwin's men. It's almost as if George wants us to immediately communicate something about the Boltons. But what? What could he possibly be trying to communicate? It's a mystery. You're reading far too much into it, Jeff. Nothing happens with Roose Bolton. True that. Again, we're on the good reread this time. Nothing bad is going to happen to Team Stark. Anyhow, Rob wasn't talking like his brother much these days. He was Rob the Lord. But Rob kind of has a point about that. It wasn't that long ago that Bran was attacked by the Wildlings and Night's Watch deserters. The memory still gives Bran nightmares, but it's more than just bad dreams that Bran's having. Bran is ashamed that he couldn't do anything when he was attacked. Even Rickon, at age 
almost four years old, would have at least kicked his attackers, but Bran was helpless as a baby. To add poignancy to Bran's helpless shame, he starts thinking about how he would have climbed over the walls of Winterfell to go visit the town just a year ago, but now he can only watch from the top of the wall with Maester Lewin's telescope. For his part, Lewin had been kind enough to teach Bran about the different sigils of the Northern Houses, the Mormont Black Bear, the Flayed Man of House Bolton, the Teddy Roosevelt Bull Moose for the Hornwoods, the Battle Axe for the Kerwins, three Sentinel Trees for the Tall Hearts, and the best sigil, of course, a Roaring Giant and Shattered Chains for House Umber. And then Bran had learned the men under the banners as Rob hosted each of these bannermen in turn. And just to twist the knife a little bit at Bran's discomfort at his disability, some of those bannermen that were hosted had stared at Bran when he was up on the dais with his brother. Bran thinks that they think him unworthy to sit above them. Kind of rough. Back to the wall, though, Bran turns to Maester Lewin and asks how many men are encamped around Winterfell. Uh, 12,000 men, or near enough as makes no matter, Lewin responds. Okay, great, but how many knights? Ah, as for that, not many. The Northmen ain't about the knightly tradition of standing vigil and a sept and being anointed with the seven oils. That's a southern tradition tied up in the weirdo faith of the seven religion. Up here in the north, they follow the old gods. A man's worth is not marked by a sir before his name. And as Emmett would say, damn straight. But Bran still wants to know how many knights. Dude, it's like 400 max, Lewin tells Bran. And now with Lord Karsark present, the army is complete for now. And Rob will need to get moving soon. Or not at all. Besides, there's more soldiers waiting to join up with Rob along the King's Road, and the fighting has already started in the Riverlands. Rob needs to get gone fast. And Bran knows that Rob is leaving, and he feels miserable about it. He asks Hodor to take him back down to the Winterfell Keep, but Lewin warns Bran that Rob won't have time to see him. Bran, though, doesn't want to see Rob. He wants to go to the Godswood. Hodor climbs down from the walls of Winterfell with Bran still attached to his back. Lewin had made a wicker basket for Hodor to carry Bran around in. The only tricky part about the basket was um, Hodor had trouble going through doors. It could be painful for Bran. Painful for Bran to go through doors, huh? Hmm. Yeah, more on this later. As Bran and Hodor progress into the Winterfell courtyard, they pass by Karstark Lancers riding through the gate. Everyone stares at Bran and one asshole even laughs. I would not be sad if that laughing man ended up as one of the casualties of the Green Fork. Just saying. But Lewin had warned Bran that people would stare at him and they would mock him too. Let them mock, Bran thought. No one would mock him in his bedchamber, but he would not live his life in bed forever. And so Bran whistles and his direwolf summer comes loping about. The, bra- the very brave Karstark men are scared shitless. Their horses go rearing back. And I just want to say, love the power move, Bran. Love it. Hodor carries Bran through the rest of the castle, passing men, Mykonez Forge, and then they're at the Godswood. For Bran, this was a place of peace and quiet. He pulls himself out of the wicker basket and asks to be alone in front of the heart tree. Hodor says, Hodor, and hurries off to get naked in the pool. But now Bran was alone with the heart tree. Alone, that is, except for Summers there, too. Bran was a fan of the godswood before his quote-unquote accident, but he now loved the place even more. He was even coming to love the great heart tree in the middle. He was safe here, with the old gods watching. And in that safety, Bran prays. Please, make it so that Rob won't go away. Please make him stay. Or if he has to go, bring him safe with mother and father and the girls and make it make it so Rickon understands. You see, Rickon had been a royal terror since he had first learned that Rob was heading out. He punched old Nan, refused to eat, cried, screamed. And one time he'd even disappeared and was only found in the Winterfell crypts with Shaggy Dog, who then proceeded to bite Gage in the arm and took a chunk out of Micken's thigh. Yummy. Only Rob and Greywin had been able to bring Shaggy to heal. And now that dire wolf was chained up. 
Luanet Brand had told Rob that he should stay put at Winterfell, but no. Rob was bound and determined to go. He had to go. Brand thinks this was half a lie as someone really kind of had to march south to help out the Tullys and secure the neck. But did it have to be Rob? Well, for Rob, yeah, it, it really did have to be for it really did have to be him. Ned wouldn't stay put and send men to die for him. Rob was Rob the Lord now, and a bit of a stranger to Bran. Though Rob was only almost 16, he was no longer acting like the beloved brother that Bran had known. More and more, Rob had put on his lord's face, especially around his lord's bannerman. Roose Bolton and Robert Glover demanded battle commands. Mage Mormont insulted Rob and told him he should marry her granddaughter. Lord Kerwin had tried to marry his own 30-year-old daughter off to Rob. Lord Hornwood brought gifts and tried to get Rob to return lands and hunting rights to the Hornwoods, but Rob had kept his lord's face up, answering all of these lords and bending them to his will. All of those lords except for Lord Great John Umber. A massive man, as tall as he is wide, is kind of how it's described. Great John had threatened to march his host back to the last hearth if he was put in the order of march behind the Kerwins or Hornwoods. Rob had some thoughts about this. Oh, you are welcome to do so. And when we are done with the Lannisters, we will march back north, root you out of your keep, and hang you for an oathbreaker. Rob's kind of growing some stones on him, and good on him for that. But Great John had gone ballistic anyways, throwing his beer into this fire and tossing aside Hollis Mullen, and then unsheathed his sword. Rob only whispered a command to Greywind, and the direwolf went into warrior mode, tearing fingers off Great John Umber. My lord father taught me it was death to bear steel against your liege lord, but doubtless he only meant to cut my meat. And the Great John's response? Well, it's a fan fave. Your meat is bloody tough. And then the man had laughed and become Rob's staunchest ally thereafter. But that night, Rob had come into Bran's room with his lord's face gone. He was Rob the boy again, scared shitless about how he thought that the great John was going to kill him. And the Umbers weren't the worst of his lord's bannermen. Lord Roos never says a word. He only looks at me and all I can think of is that room they have in the Dreadfort where the Boltons hang the skins of their enemies. You know, I mean, I, I wonder, are, are the Boltons... The baddies. What could possibly give you that idea, Jeff? Well, you know, they've got the flayed man on their banner. They have a room where they hang the skins of their dead enemies. And their castle is called the motherfucking Dreadfort. These are really extraordinarily subtle clues that George is laying here that the Boltons may, they may be the baddies. But I guess we're just going to have to keep reading to find out for sure. I'm just, I'm in suspense. As am I. Anyways, Rob is anxiety written, not knowing what to do. And he really wishes that Ned were here too. And that's really something that both Bran, Rickon, as well as Rob uh, can agree on. They all wish that Ned was here. But they really have no idea what's going on in the South. News had reached Winterfell of Ned, with some reports saying that he was in a dungeon. True. Others said he was a fugitive. False. Others said that the Winterfell guardsmen's heads were rotting on the spikes of the Red Keep. True. Oh, and the Baratheons had apparently laid siege to King's Landing. Uh, spoilers for A Clash of Kings? Come on, George. <laughs> Ned had fled south with the terrorist Renly. Hell fucking no. Sander Clegane killed Arya and Sansa. Nope. Catelyn killed Tyrion. Nah. Tywin was marching against the Eyrie. No, he's marching against the Riverlands. And one dude even claimed Rhaegar was on Dragonstone, marshalling a vast host of heroes to retake his father's throne. Nah, that ain't Rhaegar. It's Stannis looking to retake his brother's throne. But the boys had received some actual news when Sansa's raven came to Winterfell, announcing that Ned was a dirty, 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 dirty traitor. Robert was dead, and Rob and Catelyn needed to come to King's Landing to swear fealty to Joffrey. And if they did that, then Sansa would plead for Ned's life. But the letter said nothing about Arya. Damn her. What's wrong with the girl Rob rages? 
she's lost her wolf, Bran says. And then in a flashback to the flashback, Bran explains that Lady's body had returned to Winterfell and they laid her bones in the shadow of the first keep where the kings of winter laid their direwolves to rest. While Lady was buried, Grey Wind, Summer, and Shaggy Dog stalked between the graves. She had gone south and only her bones had returned. And that was not an uncommon thing for the Starks. Bran's grandfather and uncle had gone south with 200 men. None of them had returned. Ned went south and he ain't coming back this time around. And Arya and Sansa, Jory Hullen, Fat Tom, Catelyn, Roderick. Well, at least Arya and Sansa got out. I mean, they're the only survivors eventually as we get dead through the books. But now Rob was going and it frightens the shit out of Bran as well as it should. Returning to the present, Bran prays that the old gods will watch over Rob, his guards and his lord's bannermen. Oh, and you know, I guess we could sort of pray for Theon too. I guess, maybe. But most of all, Bran prays for victory. The wind sighs around the god's wood and the red leaves stir. Summer bares his teeth as Osha steps out, asking if Bran can hear the old gods. They're her gods too, the only gods north of the wall. Bran takes notice of Osha, seeing that she has brown shaggy hair and looks more womanly than he remembered when she was part of the wildling band that had nearly killed him. After talking about sex to an eight-year-old, she makes to leave, but Bran stops her and asks her what she thinks the old gods are saying. Well, open your ears. The old gods are talking through the wind, they sent. And what are they saying? They're sad. Your lord brother will get no help from them. Not where he's going. The old gods have no power in the south. The werewolves were all cut down thousands of years ago. How can they watch your brother when they have no eyes? Well, Bran's scared shitless again. He tries listening again, and he thinks he can hear the sadness in the wind, but nothing else. But then the rustling increases in noise, and out pops Hodor from the brush, naked, dick swinging and all. Osha thinks that Hodor has giants blood at him, but Bran thinks the giants are all dead. It was what Lewin told him, anyhow. As to that, Lewin should head north of the wall, Osha says. The giants are all alive up there. The giant women take human husbands and breed half-breeds. But giant men take human women... But giant men taking human women was quite bad as they tended to rip the manes apart. And oh my god, why the fuck are you telling this to an eight-year-old, Osha? <laughs> Jesus. Oh my gosh. Winterfell sex ed, folks. I, it, it really is. I mean, is this how they learned sex ed at Winterfell? I mean, I, I guess... I guess. Apparently. Apparently. <sighs> Bran sends Hodor away and then asks if there really are giants. Giants and worse than giants, Lordling. I tried to tell your brother when he asked me these questions and your maester and that smiley boy Greyjoy. The cold winds are rising and men go out from their fires and they never come back. Or if they do, they're not men no more, but only whites with blue eyes and cold black hands. And when Osha had seen Rob again just the day before and tried to talk to him, Great John had shoved her aside. So Bran says, I'll take the message to Rob, and Rob will listen to him. Will he now? We'll see. You tell him this, my lord. You tell him he's bound on marching the wrong way. It's north he should be taking his swords. North, not south. You hear me? Bran does hear. But tragically, at supper time, Rob is in present at his solar. He was in council with Lord Rickard Karstark and Great John Umber and the other lords in order to make their final preparations for the march south. Some of the lesser nobles had been present at the feast, though. Lord Karstark's sons Harry and Torrin and Eddard were present. Bran sees as Hodor carries him into the, hall, into the hall. Bran is presented by Hallis Mullen and gives a stiff, yep, welcome bit, and then he hears the two youngest Karstarks being assholes about Bran's disability. Sure hope that won't come to bite them in the peen. Yeah. Bran knows he's broken, <laughs> but... <laughs> We're gonna get through this. Why did I even fucking <laughs> write it. that? I don't even know why I wrote that. You got this. Uh, okay. Uh, Bran knows he's broken, but that was all he was. He doesn't want to be broken. He wants to be a knight. 
Lewin puts on that some people call the maesters Knights of the Bind, and Bran might want to become a maester and learn their trade. No, Bran says. He wants to learn magic. The Three-Eyed Crow, aka Old Dan, as we all know, because that is who the Three-Eyed Crow is, had told Bran he would fly. Lewin sighs and says that he can teach him all sorts of stuff, but no man can teach him magic. The children could, Bran says. The children of the forest. And that reminds Bran about what Osha told him about the goings-on north of the Wall. Lewin listens to all listens to it all science-like, but he dismisses it because, yeah, that's the trope. Lewin thinks that Rob has too many concerns on his hands right now with trying to rescue Ned. The Lannisters hold Ned, not the children of the forest. Two days later, Bran sits strapped atop a horse, watching as Rob Stark is mounted up and prepared to march south with the starling face of a direwolf emblazoned on the shield strapped to the side of his horse. You must take my place as I took father's until we come home, Rob says. Bran knows this, and he feels miserable about it. He didn't have the slightest fucking idea on how to be a lord. Well, listen to Maester Lewin's counsel and take care of Rickon. Tell him I'll be back as soon as the fighting is done. Rickon had refused to see Rob and had stayed in his chamber defiant. No farewell, the boy had screamed at Bran. No one ever comes back. Well, Rob wasn't happy about that. He can't be a baby forever. He's a Stark and near four. Well, mother will be home soon, and I'll bring back father, I promise. And... Rob, no goodbye? No, nothing? Of course not. At that, Rob turns his horse about and trots away with Hollis Mullen holding the banner and Grey Wynn at his feet. Theon and Great John join Rob on either side, and then men form up in a column, their spear tips glinting in the sun. He's marching the wrong way, Bran thinks uncomfortably. Bran thought about shouting it after Rob, but it was too late. Foot soldiers and townsfolk cheer Rob as he rides off. They cheer him in ways that they would never cheer Bran. He might be the Lord of Winterfell while his brother and father were gone. But he was still Bran the Broken. He couldn't even get off his own horse except to fall. The cheers grow farther and farther away until at last the distant cheers fade into silence. Bran is alone in the empty castle courtyard now, and the whole place seems deserted and dead. Those that remain were women, children, old men, and Hodor. The stable boy looks lost and afraid. Hodor? Hodor says silently. Hodor, Bran agreed, wondering what it meant. And that is a Game of Thrones brand six, a chapter that could have been written as a rousing chorus on the start of Rob's righteous crusade to save Ned. But no, it's a much more sad, more brilliant reflection on the boys marching off to war. And, you know, you could keep your brand's epic dream sequence from brand three. This here, this is my favorite brand chapter so far. So, Emmett, my question for you, brand six, greater than symbol, brand three, question mark. Well, I don't want to tell you you're wrong, Jeff. I know how you react to that. It's good. I'll give you that. It's definitely the best of the later Bran chapters in A Game of Thrones, of the Bran chapters in the second half of the book. It's it's definitely the best. It's been quite a while in real life and in universe since we checked in at Winterfell, and a lot has changed in the meantime. Bran 6 is in large part about reacting to those changes, the heart of House Stark rising to the challenge we've seen unfold over the past handful of chapters. As such, Martin is weaving together two tones here. On the one hand, you've got desperate hope on the part of both our POV and the first-time audience that Rob can save his dad from the Lannisters and write the ship of the narrative. On the other, as this chapter goes along, you start seeing signs that things aren't going to go as well as we might hope, which of course only becomes more poignant on reread. We're seeing this cavalry forming up to save the day, knowing that, in truth, they won't save Ned, and will be gradually whittled down in battle in the Riverlands, Westerlands, and Crownlands before half the survivors turn on the rest at the Red Wedding. Yeah, it, it <laughs> that's basically the the message of this chapter is that it's great and all that you know Rob is marching up and getting ready to march off to war, and it is a just war. It's a just cause that Rob is marching on behalf of, 
and you could frame this as these boys going off in triumphant, like I said, crusade mode to take down the evil Lannisters. But Martin chooses to go a completely different way here. He's got Rob dealing with quarrelsome, difficult people and as, as his Lord's Bannerman. But amidst all that, he's got Bran dealing with his own brokenness. And you've got Osha standing over it all being like, this isn't the best idea. Your real threat is not going to be south of the Lannisters. They're they're like the B team bad guys. You know, the real – the A team is up north there and they are coming, man. And that's that's a really good message I think that Martin is communicating here in this chapter that goes beyond a, a simple like, you know, get the men together and ride off with your posse sort of thing. It becomes more of a – this. I mean, it feels off, right? I mean, that's that's the impression that I get from this entire chapter, that it really, really feels off. I mean, it's great and all that the Northern Army is assembling, but again, this chapter, we entitled it Marching the Wrong Way, because in the end, they end up going the exact wrong direction that they need to go. Absolutely. It's that context of Osha's conversation with Bran later in the chapter, and how that interacts with the other moving parts in the chapter, especially regarding the Northern Army. And really, more than any of the Starks, the main character of Bran Six is the Northern Army. Mm -hmm. This is where Martin starts his investigation of armies in motion that we're going to see a lot more of in the series. We're going to be seeing Tywin's army a few chapters from now, Drogo's army going to war as they try to gather slaves to uh, pay the Iron Price for the Iron Throne. In Clash of Kings, of course, we'll get Renly's army and Stannis's army and what Balin laughably refers to as an army. <laughs> we get Mance's army combined with his people in A Storm of Swords. So many kind of examples of Martin trying to get across what it feels like to be in this this massive group and swept up in this cause. And that, that really starts here. And, you know, you see, like, the Karstarks arriving to the very literal drumbeat of war mm -hmm. as they got their drummer guy marching them in. And, you know, you feel that that pulse in, in your blood because you've just seen Ned go down. Right. And you're, you're desperate to see what, what Robin Brand do about it. And, yeah, and then you get this examination of the Stark vassals. And they're, they're described as this, this swarm of suitors, each bringing mm -hmm. their own political and military logic to the table. Each lord is a problem to be solved, basically. And this allows Martin to dig into the relationship between political and military power in a feudal context as well as introduce vital families for the story going forward. It's, all these characters are really significant, not only in and of themselves, but about what their relatives do, especially when you get to the Boltons. But the same thing applies to the Umbers and the Mormonts and the Glovers. Martin's going to keep bringing these characters back because they're important in terms of who rules the North. And Rob is putting himself forward as a candidate for that position in this chapter long before he actually crowns himself. And I think it's also of interest just in terms of political, of the politics and geography of the North, that it's taken the Starks at seemingly a pretty long time to assemble everyone together at Winterfell itself because you've got the Karstarks who are coming in to join up with uh, with Rob at Winterfell and they're marching down from Carhold, which is in the northeast portion of the north. And we're talking about a vast expanse of territory. And in the end, the army says is only 12,000 or so when they all assemble at Winterfell. They will, of course, increase in size as they march south. They'll pick up the Manderleys. They'll pick up some folks from the Reeds and some other – they call them Barrow Knights and different folks as well. The Dustins and Briswells will jump in with Rob. We'll have some of the – few of the Mountain Clansmen will also join up with Rob too. But we have this vast expansive territory and not a whole lot of people that are able to join the army itself. I mean 12,000 soldiers sounds like a pretty impressive number. It's not that impressive altogether when you consider that when Renly Baratheon assembles, you know, calls the banners at High Garden, he's got the might of the Reach and the Stormlands, most of the Stormlands on his side, and the army is nearly 100,000, 80,000 to 100,000 strong. So it, what I think is interesting about that is that it gives this impression that, you know, Rob's going to be this underdog throughout, right? That the underdog is going to triumph. And I mean, initially, 
yeah, it's, it's going to work out well for Rob. He is the underdog. He's going to triumph against Tywin Lannister and against Jaime. But ultimately, it's not going to work out well as they start to realize that the numbers are just so against the Starks that they can't really hope to hold on to their victories that they had secured early in a Game of Thrones and into a Clash of Kings, especially when the Lannisters and the Tyrells joined together. Well, it's the same as we said about Sirio Pharrell in Arya Four. Martin has this romantic attachment to underdog characters, but he's too devoted to a certain level of realism to allow them to just triumph against all possibilities of logic right. and all, all rules of the world they inhabit. And yeah, I think you can see that you know this is a chapter in which, on, on the one hand, stark power is being asserted and stamped in every corner, but it's being challenged from without by the Lannisters and from within by the Lords. Yes. Because you're right, the North, for all its bluster and bravado, can't come close to the Lannisters or the Tyrells in terms of wealth and size of armies. So that's why they need allies. They need the River Lords and, you know, and on their wish list, the Vale Knights yes. to join them in order to have a chance against the, against the South. And as Brand notes, there's this larger historical context with how Stark mm-hmm. here and that Ned went south and didn't come back just like his dad went south and didn't come back. And now Rob is asking everyone to go south. So this has an impact not only on the Starks as individuals, but politically on their vassals. Their vassals know that this is a moment of struggle and challenge for House Stark, that House Stark is on the precipice of a real fall in, in a way they haven't faced in a long time, really, since the dragons arrived. So along with the usual Game of Thrones dickering you would get at any council <laughs> meeting at Winterfell, like, you know, Lord Kerwin trying to get his daughter into Rob's bed, Lauren Hornwood bribing, you know, everyone to try to get some land, that would go on at peacetime, too. That's just the usual mm-hmm. nature of feudal politics. But then you get the more existential challenges that fit this moment in which the leader of House Stark is wounded and in prison and accused of being a traitor and his, his green son is marching to war. There, there are two main challenges. First up, of course, is the Great John, mm-hmm. everyone's favorite character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think he's somewhat misunderstood. I mean, he's he's loved as this kind of great bellowing over the top jock you know, <laughs> archetype. But beneath that, he's ambitious and cunning yes. in a way that really few other lords are. Like it's no accident that when we get to the end of this book, it's the Great John more even than Rob is the one who wills the independent Northern Kingdom back into being after Ned's death. Mm-hmm. He proposes it. At the, at the meeting in Riverrun, and it does not seem like he's talked to Rob about it beforehand. Mm-mm. It seems like he just goes for it. And here he seizes this opportunity to be a vessel for discontent with the Green, Stark, and Winterfell. Like if Rob falls, the Great John has now positioned himself to politically benefit because he was the one who pointed it out to everybody. But when that fails, he immediately switches gears and decides, decides to be Rob's right-hand man instead. And you could say that's just, oh, the Great John respecting Rob's power politics. And that's certainly part of it. But it's also the Great John glancing around the room like he does in the show and realizing, oh, I got to play this moment just right or I'm done politically. So my, my chance now was to join up with Rob and be his right-hand man and get power through him. And he does that immediately. So I think you can see that it's easy to characterize the Northmen as just, you know, bluff, honest warriors who don't meddle with these, these fancy politics. But that's not true. They, they absolutely practice politics. It's in a, in a different tone than it might be in the Reach or the Westerlands, but it's just as clever and just as multi-layered. I think that's a brilliant point. I mean, you have the overtones of kind of Great John going from enemy to friend of Rob Stark that is presented in text as being a almost chivalric kind of romantic moment of, ah, well, he got savaged by the wolf, but because he demonstrated that he was a true Stark that – that Great John Umber is going to become Rob Stark's best friend when the actual undertones of it are is that, you know, Great John is looking around and realizing that he has to start saddling up or he's going to end up being potentially besieged and hanged like a traitor the way that Rob threatens him. And I think it's also you, you bring up a fantastic point too, is that the Northern the Northerners have this 
uh, you might call it like an inner nobility that kind of sometimes comes off because they're the quote unquote good guys of the story because they're fighting against the Lannisters, of course. That's the main reason why they're the good guys in the story. But underneath of that veneer is some real hard politics here that we see, especially in Bran's chapters in A Clash of Kings at the summer, at the, at the Harvest Feast, where you have uh, Great John's brothers coming down to Winterfell, Hawthorne Moors, and trying to jockey and get the rights to to foresting up in the north. You've got the Manorlys as well, which is another fan favorite house because Wyman Manorly has that fantastic The North Remembers speech in A Dance with Dragons coming down and trying to wheedle his own way and trying to marry his way into uh, Lady Hornwood, whose husband, of course, as we talked about in the summary, is, is one who's marching with Rob, but he ends up dying at the Battle of the Green Four. So all of these northern lords are playing politics. They're playing their own smaller version of the Game of Thrones, but it's no less the Game of Thrones than the Tyrells, the Lannisters, the Dornishmen, all of these different characters and, and houses play. It's just a little bit different in terms of its taste. I mean, I, I think it's probably the best way is – I mean, I, it's a weird way of putting it, but I kind of think of like taste in terms of like the – like these guys are – they're, they're drinking beer and they're they're drinking beer at their small council chambers. They're you know doing politics uh, at the bar as opposed to like the folks in the south who are drinking wine or Dornish harbors and stuff like that. And that's just more of a taste thing. It's not the actual. It doesn't actually change the game that's being played there. I think that's a great metaphor because what does Gior Marmont say about his beer to John when John becomes his squire? You got to like boil the wine just so and got to have this flavor and this flavor, but not this flavor because that's the rankest sort of southern heresy. Right, having lemon in your beer. Because that's, I mean, culture is about aesthetic yeah. in a large part. It's about how you carry yourself, how you how you talk. And you, yeah, it's, it's not that the Northern culture doesn't have politics in it. That would be ridiculous. Right. It's that the politics is filtered through Northern culture. Yes. It, it takes place in the same arena, but with different different kind of practices. And this is something that Martin is clearly very interested in. Look at Danny having to, quote, put on her floppy ears to be the, the queen of marine and the, the signals that clothing send. That's the kind of... That's the kind of game that Rob is now taking part in, and it's a complex one. Like, I mean, the Great John, the objection that leads the Great John to stand up and pull his sword out isn't like the Great John saying, you, Rob, you have to prove yourself as a true Stark to me or I won't march. It says, I don't want to be behind the Kerwins or the Hornwoods in the march. <laughs> like, the most petty political jockeying for influence exactly. thing you can imagine, just as you wouldn't find in the South. And that's coming from, from the Great John number. But, of course, on the flip side... You get Roose Bolton, the leech lore, the master of the Dreadfort. I'm so pleased we have arrived at Roose the Noose because he is a favorite of mine. You were you listed your favorite uh, non-point of view characters in the series recently on Twitter. And mine, I, obviously Stannis is my number one. Euron is a close second. Mm -hmm. I'd probably put Sandor as third and then Roose. He's, he's, he's just – I just love how he's written. I love the tone. Um, and I just love how everyone who interacts with him for more than 15 seconds just comes away going, what is wrong with that man? <laughs> Did you notice that? What is that? What is it? I can't like they can't describe why exactly. Yeah. He's just alien and off putting to everyone around him. And it starts here with Rob describing Roos as just looking at him. Right. Just looking the way a spider might regard a fly who's buzzing near its web. Just the complete opposite of the great John. And what that suggests to me, the fact, just the fact that Martin writes this at all suggests to me that long before all the intricate machinations of the Red Wedding, Roos has already decided that chaos was to be his ladder. Mm -hmm. Before he knows he's going to get in bed with the Lannisters in the phrase, I think the second he learned what was going down in King's Landing, he said, this is my time. Yeah. I mean, I'm, the Starks are weak. I'm going to take every chance I get. So unlike the Great John, who openly, explicitly defied Rob and pulled his sword, which Roos never did, <laughs> Roos is the irreconcilable one. The Great John is someone you could bring inside the tent. Roos is the one... 
who is, is already like from his men attacking the Kerwin men, as you said, in the Wintertown, to his treachery at the Green Fork, which will cover in Tyrion 8. Bruce is already acting as a cancer cell within the Northern Army here in book one, two books before the Red Wedding. It's also uh, the other point that's brought up too is that in terms of like leading the vanguard of the Northern Army, it's what the the Glovers, uh, Robert Glover says, yo, he's joking around with Rob is kind of like his bro, like, hey, I would love to like do that. And apparently like Bruce Bolton threatened Rob. Apparently that's the way that it's kind of put as he did it with a threat as opposed to Glover doing it with a with a jest. And I think that's really signaling to us that this guy is not, not for the best, um, to put it mo- a little bit mildly. Um, uh, it's... It's really cool though too, I think when – because I, I love Roose Bolton as a character as well because he's he's such an interesting contrast to all of these northern lords blustering about, trying to bribe his way in. Like he is just a living open threat. Like his entire presence, all of his actions in this chapter is as a threat. And we're first introduced him by name, I think in Eddard Six where he was the guy who was counseling Robert Baratheon to execute Barristan Selmy. So we, yep, we haven't had that a, sets the tone. We haven't had a single moment in so far in Roose Bolton, and we never will, where we're not like, this guy is – there's something fucking wrong with him. Like that's that's the tone that Martin immediately wants to set for us. And I think here we're also seeing uh, of interest for those who are interested in more of the meta side. We're seeing George R. R. Martin really taking an extreme turn away from – the pitch letter, which had Rob Stark dying in battle. So we have the introduction of Bruce Bolton here. It's very clear on rereading this chapter now in twenty in the year of our Lord 2019 that George had already settled on Bruce Bolton taking a part in Rob Stark's downfall, that he was looking at him as part of being part of the Red Wedding. Of course, he probably didn't have all the particulars figured out at this point. That would come in the next few years as he's writing a Game of Thrones. But here he's saying this guy, there's something wrong and off about this guy. So he's already setting the tone for the entirety of what Roose Bolton is going to be doing under Rob Stark's – under, in quotation marks, Rob Stark's command. Even when Roose tries to be relatable, like when he's talking about how much he enjoys sleeping with Fat Waldy, even that is just really weird and off-putting and comes out of nowhere right. and makes Theon even more afraid of him. He, he's just so skin-crawling. And yeah, I, I completely agree with what you were saying on the meta side that he exists to kill Rob Stark. That's why he was invented. Yes. That's why Martin Martin set out to create a character he could use to kill Rob once he decided Rob wasn't going to die in battle against the Lannisters anymore. And that's why I think you can see Roose and Dance as just kind of this laid back stepdad kind of character. Yes. Who doesn't really seem particularly invested in anything anymore. And Ramsay is increasingly taking center stage as the Bolton you have to like watch out for and mm-hmm. will cause trouble. And speaking of Ramsay, what I really love about how Martin writes the, the Northern families going forward is that the roles I was just talking about, about the great John who openly challenges Rob, but then joins him and is his loyal right-hand man versus Roos who doesn't openly challenge Rob, but you know does so under the surface. Those roles are mirrored in the Umbers and Boltons who are left behind. The, the, the home front uh, Northerners who we will see more of in Clash of Kings. Crowfoot and Horsebane, who you mentioned, are, are truculent when they arrive at Winterfell and are demanding things and saying they don't want to work with Manderley. But ultimately, they fall in line and do as they're told yes. by the Starks and by Sir Roderick. Ramsay, of course, goes full Ramsay. And just like Bruce here, he is this, this rogue element that ends up infecting everything he mm-hmm. touches in the North and is ultimately more responsible for the f- breakdown of social order in the North than the Greyjoys are. No, that's a fantastic point. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the Umbers are playing the Game of Thrones, right? But they're playing it in a way that's understandable, right? It's it's acceptable social practice what the Umbers are doing and what the Manderleys end up doing in A Clash of Kings. 
Yeah, it's a little bit kind of cynical and somewhat cold hearted as well, especially as we get to Danella Hornwood and the kind of the way they kind of treat her as a piece of cattle that they can utilize. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, but at the same time, and this is not to excuse the behavior that is a normal part of the feudal politics that are in that are at work in any other region of the North. But what the Boltons do is not within feudal bounds here. I mean, we're talking about a family that is essentially house peak of the North. I mean, that's probably the best like analog that we can see. Like these guys are constantly working to undercut their liege lords. They're working to consistently dispel the societal norms in the North. Ramsey, who is, again, not mentioned by name in this or even referenced at all, even ambiguously in the first book, seemingly comes about in the in this in the second book in George's mind, but definitely he's left behind by Roose Bolton. And again, the reason why he's likely left behind by Roose Bolton is not because, well, I mean, partially probably Roos can't really fucking stand him because no one can stably stand Ramsey. But at the same time, he's leaving him behind specifically to further Bolton ambitions in the North and to ensure that House Bolton is able to gain a lot from the chaos and the violence that's going to ensue in the coming War of the Five Kings. Yeah, I think you nailed it there. We're obviously going to be touching on a lot more of that when we get into A Clash of Kings and then A Dance with Dragons. Soon. The, these, these, exactly. These Northern Homefront characters become our focus. But, of course, the work of reconciling all of the above, everything we've been talking about, falls on the shoulders of young Rob Stark, mm-hmm. who really becomes the young wolf we know and love in this chapter. I think this is when we first see him, the the, the king in the north who will be, be crowned at the end of this book and, and goes into the Westerlands campaign. We've maybe seen glimpses of Rob trying to be the leader before, but I think this is where he cements it. Yes. And he's he's facing a lot of obstacles at once. There's the political dangers of Ned's downfall, as we mentioned, that it makes House Stark look like it's on the precipice of disaster. There are the military dangers in the Riverlands that he's going up against Tywin and Jaime, each one with their own army. There's his his youth, his lack of experience. There's his truculence and ever divisive bannerman, <laughs> as we've been saying. He passes these tests with flying colors, particularly with the Great John. I think it's worth breaking down exactly what he does. When he's his response to the Great John saying he's going to take his men home is is not to give in, nor is it to order the Great John executed on the spot. What he does is to say, if you do that, we will come and hang you for an oathbreaker. We, not I. Right. Which means he's calling on the other lords in the room. He's implicitly saying, we are already a group. You, the Great John, you are isolating mm-hmm. yourself. You are the one, you, not me, are the one who are othering yourself in this group. He's just a- assuming command of the rest. And in that way, is able to take command. You know, it's the same way Catelyn acted at the, in the crossroads when she was snatching Tyrion. She's able to remind people of their feudal bonds and so bring them together. And then he unleashes Grey Wind, so he's kind of summarizing Stark power. That if you, if you challenge me openly, the Great John pulling his sword in the same way Viserys is pulling his sword at Veistoth Rock a little while back, Rob comes down hard. But then he offers mercy, so he's making an ally instead of an en- enemy and setting a pattern to be followed. It's a lesson for everyone else in the room. You know, if you defy me, I'm coming down on you with steel. But if you recognize, you know, that I'm in charge here, we can work together. And that's that's leadership is the is the projection of confidence. Of course, you know, he comes to Bran later and confesses that he was terrified, but he has to pretend that he's not. He has to act like he's in charge even when he isn't. There's a, a great episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, because <laughs> why would I not, um, where uh, Captain Picard is on this, stranded on this planet with another member of his crew, Dr. Beverly Crusher, and they, because of a thing that happened, they have like this mental link where they can sense each other's thoughts. And Picard says, oh, we're going to go this way. This is the way we have to go to be rescued. And Dr. Crusher realizes, you're just making that up. You have no idea which direction we should go in. And he's like, yeah, but I have to. That's what being in charge is, is, right. is projecting this confidence so you can keep everyone together and not have panic and collapse, even when you don't really know what you're doing. And that's the lesson I think Rob is learning here. Yeah, it really is. I mean, Rob is definitely coming on the side of 
he's uh, what I mean. What's the, the the motto we learned was something like, "If in the absence of orders, march in the direction of gunfire." Like that's the kind of the the thing that Rob is is utilizing here. Like he's moving with a purpose. He's getting his men together. He's wrestling and some and Greywind is physically wrestling with his men in order to bind them to his will. And I think again, we're talking about this as in the context of the overarching context of being a testimony to Ned Stark and his tutoring of his sons and of Rob Stark in particular as his heir. And Rob Stark is not even 16 at this point in the story, but he has enough of Ned's gumption that he's able to get these lords to work with him, to get these people the various and different desires at once, political needs that they have, and utilizes them. And again, this is Rob on the on the precipice. He's a young man, as you say. He's trying to gather these people behind him, and the ones who betray him do so for their own interests. Really, I think more than his own failure of leadership. Right. I think Bruce always had an eye against him, and Ricard really goes on this suicidal spiral uh, after the death of his sons. He has to constantly set himself up as the, the fiercest man in the room, but someone who will hold back on his ferocity at the same right. time. And that's that, that's a difficult balance to attain. And that's something we see a lot of lead, leaders struggle with in the series and the difficulty of finding that balance. But of course, our, our POV here is not Rob, but Bran, who does get a kind of a little lost in the chaos in this chapter. There, is, there are large stretches of this chapter where it's really not about Bran, but about Rob and the Northern Army. Right. And I think you can see Martin going back to the chapter and making sure he includes parts relevant to Bran's arc because he, he writes these scenes about how the arrival of so many strangers forces Bran to deal with his disability. He can't write out on his own like he could before. There's always that emphasis on the word before in Bran's chapters where he's thinking about life before the fall. And so he has to observe everything from afar. And when he does interact with the, the, the men, the new arrivals, he gets stares and mutters and <laughs> people are, you know, wondering why he's there and wondering why he's at the high table ahead of them. But I love that Bran says he's not going to retreat to his bedroom and cut himself off from the world. And you can see that again in The Clash of Kings when he's bored by a lot of the political gamesmanship but takes interest in some things yeah. and talks to the lords and cares about them as people. And this is his own test of metal. It's smaller scale than Rob's. You know, there's no – Bran doesn't have a wolf bite off anyone's <laughs> fingers in this chapter. But it's just as significant in terms of his character that he's taking control of his own life and decides he's not going to hide anymore. He's in between Rob and Rickon. Rob has to take charge of everything. Rickon is Rickon is in full meltdown mode right. in this chapter. Rickon is like the id of the Stark kids at this mm -hmm. point. He's just like in like no control. He's not putting on the Lord's face the way Rob does in this chapter. Why Bran has to at the end. Rickon is like Rickon is like what Rob and Bran feel like inside, but are just keeping down. Mm -hmm. Like Rickon expresses those emotions. Having him describe as the id is a perfect way of, of describing him. I think it's also. Interesting too, you do kind of wonder whether he has maybe a touch of prophetic foresight in that he's the one who's constantly being like, no good, no farewells, no goodbyes. Like no one's going to come back from this sort of thing. And he's sure, he's, sure, he's good right. Point. I mean, as much as like he's kind of an annoying kid in this chapter, he, he ain't wrong. You know, that's that's the big thing about Rickon is that he, he ain't wrong about what he's saying. I, I think he ends up being dismissed by readers if you're reading it for the first time because they're like, oh, this is just a four year old kid. Like he's not going to know anything for sure. Uh, in contrast, though, Bran is interesting because we're starting to see the further development of Bran and Lewin's relationship, which I think is a really, really cool development in the story that's going to progress on into A Clash of Kings, where Lewin is going to be Bran's right-hand man at Winterfell. And we're seeing Lewin offering counsel to Bran and Bran listening and interacting with Lewin and sometimes even pushing back against Lewin as well. That's also something we'll see in The Clash of Kings too. So I think it's good that Martin is drawing up this character study in terms of Bran and having him having his mentor figures 
first in the form of Lewin, but then, of course, in the form of Osha as well, who's going to be a major, major mentor figure for Bran, especially on the mystical side until the arrival of Jojen Reed. Yeah, I like that early scene with Bran and Lewin in the chapter, again, emphasizing that Bran is on the precipice between childhood and adulthood, adulthood, like Rob, and just in a different stage of it, where Bran is mature enough, unlike Rickon, to face the realities of what's going on. He says he knows that someone has to go. He knows that the fighting has to happen. But he's still, like, innocent enough to put all the emphasis on how many knights Rob has in his army, even though, as Lewin points out, that's not <laughs> that's not the main point. Right. Like, you know, you, we have trained cavalry, so they don't. it doesn't matter if they have Sir in front of their name. Right. It's like, they're cavalry, and that's what knights do, so the function is fulfilled, but that's not what Brand is talking about at all. He's just talking you know, talking about the, the image and the glory in his head. But yeah, Brand's own arc does come much more into focus when he reaches the Oasis of the Godswood, and he interacts with Osha. And... This is, of course, an extremely plot-significant bond mm-hmm. for Bran, because Osha will help him escape from Theon and the Clash of Kings. And I think she's an underrated character, even by the author himself, judging from what he said about how the performance on the show made him reconsider the character and want to give her more material, which suggests she wasn't taking up a huge amount of real estate in his head to begin with. And uh, I think she's actually got a lot going on here. On one level, she is, as we've said, the first wildling we spend much time with. And so she's a window into that world. And I think it's interesting that she looks at Mance in this way where he's not a savior to her, but a, quote, brave, sweet, stubborn man. Mm -hmm. And this is really our first big discussion of Mance Raider, and that's how he's being framed as a good guy, but kind of a fool who can't really take on the White Walkers and win. And, of course, by the time Mance reaches the wall, he will have realized that. He says to John that no one can fight the White Walkers, and John says, not even you. And Mance says with this deep bitterness, not even me. Mm -hmm. He's realized he has to run. But at this point, Alsha is linking Mance to Rob as both being bullheaded men who won't listen to her. Mm. As, as, as being, you know, men who are just obsessed with their leading and their armies and won't, won't take the time to listen to sensible advice because they, they think they've got it going on. And we're inclined to believe her because, of course, the structure of the book is so telling. We've been given such a vivid glimpse of what she's talking about in John 7. Yeah. When Osha talks about how men go off from their fires and come back as whites. We've just seen that. So we know she's telling the truth. And... So her warning has this real urgency and recontextualizes everything we've seen in this chapter. Suddenly, all these northern lords are not the cavalry charging in to save the day with their war drums. Mm-hmm. They're wasting resources on the wrong fight and going up against the wrong enemy. And what makes Bran different is that he listens to Ocean, takes her seriously, and at least wants to do something and wants to use his influence as best he can. And I think that's the beginning of his real connection with Ocean, why she ends up rescuing him in Clash of Kings and not just siding with Theon for food and safety is is this religious bond that they're you know she comes in talking about the old gods and now she about she makes this deal with Gage to to come out here and worship and she she sees Bran taking it seriously too. And as you say, that's because prior to Jojen showing up, Martin is using Osha to keep the magical religious thread going in Bran's story. We'll see that more in Bran's next final chapter in the Game of Thrones. And uh, here, as there, Lewin is, as you say, the the opposite. Lewin is the one arguing for like kind of the rational, skeptical view, and we see these, we see the that struggle for Bran's soul going on in much deeper detail in Clash of Kings. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's very much like the show Lost from the from the early aughts, so to speak, where you have a man of faith and man of science in the form of John Locke and the other guy's name I can't remember off the top of my head, but he was the main character who was very handsome. Um, <laughs> But yeah, Ocean very much is, is the person who is looking at the mystical side of the story and being like, yeah, I mean, I could understand why you'd want to march south. I mean, that, that's that's I think that's the thing, too, about the whole idea of marching south is that it makes sense, right? You would march south to try and save your father. I mean, Ned is still alive at this juncture in the story. And, you know, he 
Rob has every right to want to try and get south to, to try and save him, to try and fight against the evil Lannisters. But at the same time, you're kind of taking your eye off the ball. But the problem is, is that no one besides Osha really knows about the ball. And of course, now the Night's Watchmen know about it being up at Castle Black too. And that is the thing that's going to be very interesting in, in terms of our, our ending discussion for this podcast we'll talk about here. So I'll, I'll save some of my thoughts for there. But yeah, for sure, Osha is working as the mystical side here. Lewin is working as the science side here. And that's a very strong relationship that's going to continue until Jojen Reed shows up and shows Brand yet another side of the mystical, magical side of the series. Absolutely. I don't mean to wag my finger at Rob for not following this advice he never even hears, but it's significant that he never even hears it. And he doesn't hear it because the great John, we were just talking about, is the great bold truth teller at Rob's side, shoves Osha away and isn't remotely interested in what she might have to say. Like, compare that to Stannis and Davos, where Davos, just like Osha, is arguing for Stannis to take his forces north and march the right way and get away from the war in Westeros and, and fight your war against the White Walkers. But that only works because he's able to talk to Stannis. He's able to get into the room and give Stannis at least the opportunity to listen to him. Rob doesn't even get that chance. So I think it's less a condemnation of Rob and his motivations for going to war, which I agree with you, I think are justifiable, and more just the, the overall context and the kind of tragic situation these characters are in where the information just isn't getting through. Like, you know, this is what we've been waiting for, really, over the whole book since we met the others in the prologue, is someone getting to a seat of power to mm-hmm. warn people about the others that are coming, and it doesn't happen. Right. So there is that, that sense of tragedy and missed opportunity here, I think you can see, as, as the chapter ends. Yeah, it really, really kind of hits home when the chapter ends, because this is really where we get George's deconstruction. I mean, we, we talk about – I mean, so many people in the fandom talk about George is just deconstructing tropes and destroying all these tropes and stuff like that. But it's much more of a smart way that George writes The Song of Ice and Fire and that when he actually does a deconstruction of tropes, it's more talking about the flavor, so to speak, of the narrative. And it's really an amazing scene when Rob, when Rob rides out from Winterfell. And it's one I actually totally forgot until I reread it this past time before we recorded this podcast. And this is where we're seeing George's deconstruction of narrative tropes. So kind of to start off the scene of Rob leaving, we have Rob giving his, you are the Lord of Winterfell, you must take my place, Bran, listen to Lewin's speech. And then Rob sounds off with a resounding, I'll bring father back, I promise. And then of course, because it's a song of ice and fire, we cue the triumphant music and chapter Rob becomes a point of view character, right? Absolutely not. Bran is going to stay our point of view character at Winterfell and he's the one who watches Rob right off with his men. And Bran can only listen as the soldiers and townsfolk of the Wintertown cheer Rob. And the cheers get farther and farther and farther away. And then it all fades to silence. And Bran is left alone in Winterfell in the courtyard with the women, children, old men, and Hodor. So when we're talking about the deconstruction side of it, it's not that George is just – no one is safe. He kills main characters off because he doesn't actually kill main characters off. That is one of the secrets about A Song of Ice and Fire. Rob Stark wasn't a main character. Ned Stark wasn't a main character. They were archetypes of, of, of some sort, but they aren't the POV characters that are going to stay with us throughout in the, in the form of Ned and aren't going to become POV characters in the form of Rob. The deconstruction is that the camera doesn't move with the action here. It stays with Bran and the loneliness that Bran feels at being left behind and the sadness that, fan, that, that Bran feels at being broken and being unable to join Rob and going south. And yeah, we are going to pick up with Rob a bit when we get into Catelyn's chapters. But even then, after A Game of Thrones and the first chapter in A Clash of Kings, 
Rob heads off to the Westerlands, and Catelyn stays behind at River Run. George wants us to examine the unexamined side of war, the people left behind by the men who go off to fight, the immense loneliness that Bran, Rickon, and later Catelyn will feel with their family all gone, and I'm including John in this, and they're all away at war. Like That's what George is going with in deconstructing this, this kind of motif, because the camera is not going to follow Rob. It will for a little bit in Catelyn's perspective. But ultimately, it's going to stay with Brandon Winterfell. It's going to stay with those who are left behind. And that is a really smart and brilliant play on George's part because it's showing us that there is cost to war, that part of the cost is found in those that are not going to be partaking in the actual war fighting. It's going to be found in those who are going to have to deal with the results that are going to have to live with the legacy that war leaves behind for them. When Brand listens to those cheers fade away, just the mood turns sour and you can feel like a cloud passing in front of the sun. And it's if Rob's already dead. It's right. if the Red Wedding has already happened and that army is gone. They're, they're vanished. And yeah, Bran feels like he's yeah left alone to run this place. He has no idea how to manage. So there is that two-fisted approach Martin always goes for, where he, he gives you the glorious image of Rob going off to war, but then he always gives you the aftermath and the underbelly of that. And I think, yeah, that's what really what makes the series special. So I agree. It's, it's definitely an exemplary moment for A Song of Ice and Fire. So that about takes us to our foreshadowing and groundwork portion of the podcast. The first thing we wanted to talk about is that we get a subtle hint that Hodor's name is important here. There's a line earlier in the chapter which says, The only tricky part was doors. Sometimes Hodor forgot that he had Bran on his back, and that could be really painful when he went through a door. So, of course, as we found out in Game of Thrones Season 6, Hodor means hold the door. So it's likely that George is kind of embedding that here. He has talked about, apparently, back in 2016 – that hold the, hold the Door was in his mind as far back as 1991. and But he did say, interestingly enough, that the context of the Hodor's name reveal is going to be a bit different. And it will differ both in context and how it happens. So I'm very curious when we get to the Winds of Winter how that context and reveal is going to be done. We will talk about this a bit more when we get farther into A Clash of Kings because that's where we're going to get a lot more Hodor Hold the Door material. But I do think it's interesting that George is already showing us that moment here in Bran's sixth chapter in the Game of Thrones, that Hodor and Hold the Door, he provides us the answer. We just didn't know that it was that it was the answer that George is providing us, as he often does in writing. Exactly. And of course, this chapter ends with Bran repeating Hodor back to Hodor and wondering what it really means. Right. So that definitely feels like it's you know setting us up for that reveal when we get to book six. Also in this chapter, relating to Hodor, we get our first real discussion of giants. They've been mentioned in passing, especially as just like a metaphor or as a curse. But this is where we get Osha actually talking about the species as it exists. So you can see Martin trying to get us ready for that because, of course, that's going to pay off big time in John's story when we get to A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons. Yes, absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun because the giants are going to be such a feature of the story north of the wall that they are part of a song, The Last of the Giants. And it's the song that leads Ygritte into weeping. And Yeah, John says, what? There are hundreds of giants. And she says, oh, hundreds, because, of course, there used to be thousands, if not millions of them. Right. And now they've been reduced to this corner of the world, much like the Wildlings themselves. And uh, speaking of A Dance with Dragons, we also get a nice little parallel here with the Winterfall Gods, what is being described as an island in the Sea of Chaos. That'll be repeated strongly in Theon's uh, Dance with Dragons chapter, A Ghost in Winterfell. When you got the, the army rus- restless around Winterfell, crow food umber drumming outside, and the way that the Karstark drummer is, is going here. What, what makes me think Martin has those two scenes linked in his mind is in that scene... Bran is also present, but he's, he's on the other side of the heart tree. Yes. He's looking into the heart tree's face in this chapter. By the time he gets to dance and this return to the God's Wood, he's the one looking out for the Weirwood's eyes. Yeah, it's cool in Dance with Dragons how Bran is starting to open his third eye in the tutelage of By Blood Raven, not Old Nan, because uh, that's a bad, ugly theory. 
And it's really cool in that uh, Ghost of Blue Emperor chapter where Theon is sobbing in front of the heart tree that we have. Theon thinking that he's, he believes that he's hallucinating that the heart tree is saying Theon to him and is looking sad at him. But in fact, he's not hallucinating. That is most likely Bran there operating through the heart tree himself. And I think it's cool we're seeing the advancement of Bran's magical ability in that in this chapter, we have him kind of putting an emotion behind the wind that's around him, the breeze that's kind of flowing around him. When we get to A Dance of Dragons, he's able to put words into the heart tree itself and to speak out to Theon. And as because we have not mentioned Stannis yet in this chapter, I can't wait for Bran to do farther, further talking in the heart tree to Theon or to Theon and Stannis in The Winds of Winter. Absolutely. And speaking of Stannis... The Great John losing his fingers to Rob in this chapter only to then become his right-hand man is such a strong parallel to Stannis and Davos. Stannis cuts off Davos' fingers at the Siege of Storm's End. Davos becomes Stannis' most loyal vassal. So I definitely think that one of two things. Either either that relationship is already taking shape in Martin's mind, or, and I think this is probably more likely given what Martin has said about him inventing Davos at first as just a POV on Team Stannis, Martin went back to this scene as he was writing book two and thought, okay, that, you know, that was a real primal scene. I'm going to take a spin on that as the primal scene for Stannis and Davos's relationship. Yes. And I do love how the great John is referred to as Rob's right hand man. You get it? Because his hand got, ah. yes. And then Davos, of course, becomes the hand of the king to Stannis Baratheon. So definitely George loves to use those moments in the story of talking about the physical traits of characters and them embodying those traits in a more metaphorical sense of being the hand of the king or the right hand man uh, to from uh, that the great John serves as to Rob in the same way that Davos serves to Stannis in, in A Storm of Swords going forward. And then finally, for our foreshadowing heroic portion, we have – and I cite this very briefly in, in the summary, but we have that the, the Karsark brothers and the possible foreshadowing they were intended to die here because we have this quote – Harry and Karstark, the oldest of Lord Rickard's sons, bowed and his brothers after him. Yet, as they settled back in their places, he heard the younger two talking in low voices over the clatter of wine cups. Sooner die than live like that, muttered one, his father's namesake uttered. And his brother Torin said, likely the boy was broken inside as well as out, too craven to take his own life. Well, yeah. Shouldn't say shit to the astral plane Messiah, you fucking idiots. Your wish is granted. <laughs> now you're dead because these two guys are going to be killed by Jamie Lannister at the Whispering Wood. And that is going to be a big part of why the Karstarks end up abandoning Robb Stark in A Storm of Swords because Lord Rickard Karstark takes his vengeance out on the Lannister captives at River Run. It's perfect because they're killed by the same guy who threw Bran out the window. Right. The same guy who who broke Bran's legs. So by, by, by wishing that they had died... Rather than live like that, they brought that about. Be careful what you wish for. You want you want to be killed? Well, then, yep, Jamie's going to show up to kill you. So, yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely an intentional move on Martin's part. And it's a great little, great little bit of irony. So, shifting to our theory slash discussion portion. One little thing worth wargaming out is, you know, we've talked so much about Rob should have taken Osha's warning if he'd been able to hear it. And his swords really belong in the north rather than the south. So, it's worth wondering well, what would have happened if Bran had managed to pass on Osha's warning. Now, I think... Obviously, Rob isn't going to turn his whole army around on Bran and Osha's say so. Right. But if Rob can be so much as persuaded to send a raven to Castle Black right now, he will hear about the zombie attack, <laughs> which which kind of gets at one of those dreaded plot holes you hear about sometimes. <laughs> uh, it, it is weird that Mormont never sends word to Winterfell about said zombie attack. Right. I get he sends Alistair Thorne to court, but Winterfell is much closer. Mm-hmm. And clearly going to be the first line of defense. It, it is strange that no connection ever happens there. I'm presuming he just thought he wouldn't be believed. Is it, is it possible that – this is kind of those weirdnesses in George's writing that in the timeline itself, John 7 might take place after Brand 6, but he was 
move brand John seven before brand six because he wanted to show the whites attacking. And then he had OSHA talking about the whites and how the men go out of their fires. And when they come back, if they come back at all, they're going to come back as whites with blue eyes and black hands that he didn't want to, to he didn't want to like kind of Trump his own reveal that the guys who are going to come back as, as Other and Jay for flowers, when they come back, they're going to be whites. And on the other hand too, he wouldn't have the chance to have Rob Stark receive said Raven from, from Castle Black saying that the whites are here, the others are coming, that sort of stuff. But at the same time, it is still a plot hole because we get no indication from Brand's later chapters that Formont ever says, I should write to Winterfell and let them know what's going on here. There's no indication that Lewin ever receives a letter from Elsie Mormont saying, the whites are attacking, the others are coming, you guys need to get your people back up here and man the wall quick, fast, and hurry. True, you make a good point that the chronology is not necessarily going chapter by chapter, certain chapters that happen after others in the book could have happened earlier in the actual timeline. So that's definitely true. But, you know, even even if Rob is still skeptical at this point about the zombies themselves, I got to think warnings about Mance might give him some pause yes. that the wildlings are getting beyond the wall under a charismatic king and might drive south. Because as we see in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords, Rob has to defend the homeland or his rule over the north is in serious trouble. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm just imagining Rob not taking his whole army and marching them north, as Osha says, but leaving some kind of strong force, right. maybe activating some of the men who don't end up as army, like the mountain clans. There's a bunch more remaining men in the White Harbor area that Wyman talks about. Maybe order them mm-hmm. to be sent to the north. Try to get the Dustin and Ricewell men up there, even though Barbary hates the Starks. <laughs> try to politically force her into it. If, if you get those men to defend the wall, I don't want to suggest that that changes the entire metaphysical balance of things and that that, that would allow... Westeros to save itself from the others because I don't think numbers of ordinary soldiers is necessarily going to tell in that particular fight. But you do get a lot of ripple effects that would make dealing with that problem easier. Mance has a much harder time of things conquering the wall even before Stannis shows Mm -hmm. up. Stannis has a base of Northmen to work with immediately. Mm -hmm. And above all, Jon has strong numerous allies when he becomes Lord's Commander of the Night's Watch. Suddenly he has all these Northmen that were sent there to deal with this problem who are likely to look at him sympathetically as Rob's brother. And he, he, will, he will have them on his side to carry out his reforms and to protect him from the likes of Bowen Marsh. So you, you can see John having a much better chance of succeeding in his goals and the North overall having a much better chance of dealing with both the Boltons and the White Walkers. But, you know, of course we can't have this because <laughs> Martin has to strategically bleed both the North and the Night's Watch of, of fighters. He needs it to be believable, at least somewhat, that Theon and then Ramsay could sack Winterfell. You know, he needs the, the, the Boltons to have a, a prayer at holding the North and dance for there to be any drama. So while I say this could potentially save the day, I understand structurally why this can't happen. Yeah, I understand structurally why it can't happen as well. I mean, for the narrative to progress, you can't have the good guys suddenly realizing, oh, we're marching the wrong way. Let's wheel our army around and have the man the wall and prepare for the invasion by the others because then you don't have a song of ice and fire. You've got basically a book of waiting – four books of waiting around until the, the White Walkers show up. And then you have the ultimate confrontation between the Starks and their northern allies versus the others and the White Walkers or the White the Wildlings before them. I do think it's interesting though when we t- we get we get into a clash of kings that it wasn't that Rob wasn't stupid in that he marched the entire strength of the North down into the Riverlands. Sure, he had to take a ton of dudes down there to have any chance of victory against the Lannisters, but at the same time, there's reference to Roderick Cassell when he lays siege to Winterfell. When Theon has it, that he has 2,000 men he's able to rally from the Tall Hearts, the Kerwins, 
some of the mountain clansmen, some of the other smaller houses around the north as well. And then, of course, like you mentioned, you have Wyman Manerly, who has a, a fairly large and sizable host that he's able to bring to the fore in A Dance of Dragons when uh, when Ramsay and the Bolds move up there. But yeah, for sure, though, I think we're we're getting. I mean, it's a kind of a rock and a hard place thing too for for Rob, and that yeah, he can leave some guys in the north. But the real threat for him is going to be in the south because his father's a prisoner. The Tullys are about to come under siege at River Run. There's really no real good options for for Rob here besides to march south. I mean, he doesn't know that the the threat of the magical White Walkers are coming. But you know, it's an, an, Ned Stark makes a note in Catelyn's very first chapter in the Game of Thrones that he's heard about Mance Raiders become king beyond the wall, and he needs he might need to call the banners and march north there. So. Maybe Rob Stark could have left some more troops there along the wall to at least hold it against the wildlings. Then you would have secondary ripple effects of them having men around there to implement the reforms that John goes for to have the wall being banned when the others are coming. But that is an alternate universe here. So I think, you know, he has to keep the, he has to keep the thumb pressed very firmly against the Starks throughout the narrative. And he has to keep the thumb pressed firmly against humankind with the others coming because that makes for a much more interesting, much better story, so to speak. And as you said, Rob has to keep the momentum going to even keep this army together. This is not a standing army. This is a army showing up at a feudal obligation and they won't come forever. So Rob has to keep coming up with a reason to keep them fighting. We're going to see that in Clash and Storm mm -hmm. when he says, I, can't, I couldn't just let them melt around me at River Run. I had to take them to battle and take the battle to the Lannisters. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Maester Lewin's line about how it's the Lannisters who hold Ned, not the children of the forest. That's frustratingly short-sighted, but it's not it's not incorrect, especially from, from Rob Stark's perspective. And there's there's only, as you say, bad decisions. There's only trade-offs in every direction. If he sticks around longer to increase the size of his army, he increases the chance that things will go even worse in the Riverlands and King's Landing. If he, you know, tries to activate a, a bunch of men to, to show up against Mance, then there's not enough men to bring in the harvest, as we're going to see in Clash of Kings, the Emperor's complaining about it. So, you know, again, this is... Not us trying to say Rob Stark is an idiot. Right. This is us trying to see. You know, this is you know a tragic situation in which Martin has crafted things expertly so that the best option is not one really available to him or really realistic for him to take. Exactly. I mean that's that's a hundred percent what's going on with what George is doing here. That there's no good options for for Rob Stark. Even if Rob Stark had all the information available to him, if he had the ability of if he had folks who could tell him that the whites are rising, that the others are coming, that the wildlings are marching. What happens then? Does he leave his father to die in King's Landing? Does he leave the Riverlands to fall to Tywin Lannister and leave tens of thousands to be murdered by the Lannisters as – well, they're murdered by the Lannisters anyways. But more of them would be murdered most likely if you didn't have the Starks there as, as the major military force in the Riverlands. So these are the trade-offs that you have to do here. And I mean the other major thing that sometimes I hear in the fandom and which is a bad, ugly theory, which is more, more of a bad, ugly analysis is that, well, Rob should have just – sworn his vows to the Lannisters, bent the knee, and that would have been okay because that's exactly what Rob should have done to do what exactly? Well, I mean, they don't demand him to bend the knee. They demand him to come to King's Landing, right. which as Catelyn says, if he'd done that, he never would have left. Right. So, no, at this point, Rob is making the best decision with the information available to him. And uh, again, I think it's it's more a, a tragedy how the situation has worked out. And again, just trying to get us to look at it from a fresh angle. It's not deconstruction, mm -hmm. as you were saying, in terms of, haha, nothing you love means anything. Be cynical and detached. But de deconstruction in the sense that, you know, you feel these genuine emotions about Rob is doing, and then you're given another side, another angle, exactly. an, another perspective on what's, what's really going on here. 
And that, that's something I think we're going to continue to see throughout both Bran's chapters at the home front and with Rob on the road. I think that pretty much wraps us up for Game of Thrones Brand 6. So thank you so much for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. Hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Acast, anywhere and everywhere where you can find our podcasts. And uh, please check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or hit us up with an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or PoorQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me on Twitter as at Brennan Beefish, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So join us next time as Robert Baratheon. You remember him? He died, you know, 30,000 chapters ago. But his order to assassinate Daenerys Targaryen is finally paying off as the assassins finally reach Danny out in Baze Dothrak in Game of Thrones, Danny Six, and man, that chapter. I love that chapter. Yep, Robert's, Robert's orders only go off after he's dead. And that's a glorious irony we'll be talking a bunch about as we return to Baze Dothrak, as you say. So join us next week for that, folks, and take care.